Hello and welcome to Tea and Old Books. This is day 100 of the Spanish lockdown and we're reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So let's get to it. Welcome, welcome! It is now 100 days that Spain has been in lockdown. And actually, it's not technically in lockdown anymore. So Spain went for 99 days under emergency measures, and those were lifted yesterday, which I think means that technically Spain is not in lockdown. I think. But don't worry, I am still doing this podcast. Because even if we're not technically in lockdown, there are still some restrictions. As I said before, I'm in Barcelona, and Barcelona is slightly behind the rest of Spain in terms of phases. So in Barcelona, we're now in phase three. Nearly everyone else is in phase four. I've slightly lost track of what those different things mean, but I think technically in Barcelona now phase three means that the inside of shops and restaurants can have 50% capacity, I think, and the outside is no limits, but I'm not sure. And we still all have to keep a meter and a half away from each other now, and we have to wear masks when we're outside. But yeah, I think technically the lockdown is over, so I guess I'll stop counting. I feel it works very well that it ended almost exactly on 100. I find that very satisfying somehow, deep in my soul. So, I'm recording this podcast a few days early because I thought it would be fun to do it. Fun. Fun to do it on 100, day 100. Man, so many days inside, reading aloud books to no one. But... Before I get into 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, let's talk about the tea. So I'm still working my way through my June Bird and Blend tea box, which I'm quite pleased with. And today's tea is a peach cobbler. It's a black tea. It says to brew for four minutes and have with or without milk. This is the description. Our first black tea and peach pairing, and a heavenly one indeed. This blend tastes like a classic cobbler straight from the oven. Warm, gooey, sweet, with that delightful gold-brown crust. Mm. There was a shame about this information, Leaflet, is that it doesn't actually say on it what the tea is, whereas on the packets of tea it does say what it is. Now, I don't have the packet of tea with me, that would have been quite sensible. I just have the information leaflet. But from memory, I think that this is a oolong tea that they've mixed with some peach, because I guess they've got like buckets of peach bits lying around that they're shoving in everything. Um, and something else. And it smells very vanilla-y. It's a sort of darkish, lightish, darkish, lightish? I don't, <laughs> no goodness. It's a lightish brown and it smells sweet. I'm going to have some. It's very refreshing. And it's got like, um, you've got sort of a crisp first bite of the tea. You can, you can taste the tannin. 
and then there's a very swift aftertaste of vanilla. It's delicious. This is my favourite tea that I've got from Bird and Blend so far, I think. I really like it. I'm drinking it cold. I've been cold brewing again. So yesterday evening, I threw the tea into a glass bottle and I put it with some water in my fridge and I'm drinking it today. It's really good. Today, well, this week in Spain, it's suddenly gotten quite hot. It's not going to be below 20. It's sort of between 20 and 30 all week. So it's getting warmer and you need nice cool drinks like iced tea to see you through. Excellent. Okay, let's get on with the reading. So we are reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. And so far, they're just sort of zipping around under the sea looking at things. Uh, that's the summary of the whole book so far <laughs> for you. Uh, we're on chapter 10 of part 2. So far, there's been disappointingly few women. In fact, I think there's been zero women. I think the only women we've seen were some savage women who didn't get to say any words and had no actions. They were just standing around being seen objects. It's very disappointing of Jules Verne, quite frankly. But let's continue. So we're on chapter 10. The Submarine Coal Mines. The next day, the 20th of February, I awoke very late. The fatigues of the previous night had prolonged my sleep until 11 o'clock. I dressed quickly and hastened to find the course the Nautilus was taking. The instruments showed it to be still, still toward the south with a speed of 20 miles an hour and a depth of 50 fathoms. The species of fishes here did not differ much from those already noticed. There were rays of giant size, five yards long and endowed with great muscular strength, which enabled them to shoot above the waves. Sharks of many kinds, amongst others, one 15 feet long with triangular sharp teeth and whose transparency rendered it almost invisible in the water. Amongst bony fish, Conseil noticed some about three yards long, armed at the upper jaw with a piercing sword. Other bright-coloured creatures known in the time of Aristotle by the name of the sea dragon, which are dangerous to capture on account of the spikes on their back. About four o'clock, the soil, generally composed of a thick mud mixed with petrified wood, changed by degrees, and it became more stony, and seemed strewn with conglomerate and pieces of basalt, with a sprinkling of lava. I thought that a mountainous region was succeeding the long plains, and accordingly, after a few evolutions of the Nautilus, I saw the southerly horizon blocked by a high wall, which seemed to close all exit. Its summit evidently passed the level of the ocean. It must be a continent or at least an island, one of the Canaries, or of the Cape Verde Islands. The bearings not yet being taken, perhaps designedly, I was ignorant of our exact position. In any case, such a wall seemed to me to mark the limits of that Atlantis of which we, of which we had in reality passed over only the smallest part. Much longer should I have remained at the window, admiring the beauties of sea and sky, but the panels closed. 
At this moment, the Nautilus arrived at the side of this high, perpendicular wall. What it would do, I could not guess. I returned to my room. It no longer moved. I laid myself down with the full intention of waking after a few hours sleep, but it was eight o'clock the next day when I entered the saloon. I looked at the manometer. It told me that the Nautilus was floating on the surface of the ocean. Besides, I heard steps on the platform. I went to the panel. It was open. But instead of broad daylight, as I expected, I was surrounded by profound darkness. Where were we? Was I mistaken? Was it still night? No, not a star was shining, and night has not that utter darkness. I knew not what to think, when a voice near me said, Is that you, Professor? Ah, Captain, I answered. Where are we? Underground, sir. Underground, I exclaimed. And the Nautilus floating still? It always floats. But I do not understand. Wait a few minutes. Our lantern will be lit, and if you like light places, you will be satisfied. I stood on the platform and waited. The darkness was so complete that I could not even see Captain Nemo, but looking to the zenith exactly above my head, I seemed to catch an undecided gleam, a kind of twilight filling a circular hole. At this instant, the lantern was lit, and its vividness dispelled the faint light. I closed my dazzled eyes for an instant, and then looked again. The Nautilus was stationary, floating near a mountain which formed a sort of key. The lake, then, supporting it, was a lake imprisoned by a circle of walls, measuring two miles in diameter and six in circumference. Its level, the manometer showed, could only be the same as the outside level, for there must necessarily be a communication between the lake and the sea. The high partitions, leaning forward on their base, grew into a vaulted roof, bearing the shape of an immense funnel turned upside down, the height being about five or six hundred yards. At the summit was a circular orifice, by which I had caught the slight gleam of light, evidently daylight. Where are we? I asked. In the very heart of an extinct volcano, the interior of which has been invaded by the sea after some great convulsion of the earth. Whilst you were sleeping, Professor, the Nautilus penetrated to this lagoon by a natural canal, which opens about ten yards beneath the surface of the ocean. This is its harbour of refuge, a sure, commodious and mysterious one, sheltered from all gales. Show me, if you can, on the coasts of any of your continents or islands, a road which can give such perfect refuge from all storms. Certainly, I replied. You are in safety here, Captain Nemo. Who could reach you in the heart of a volcano? But did I not see an opening at its summit? Yes, its crater, formerly filled with lava, vapour and flames, which now gives entrance to the life-giving air we breathe. But what is this volcanic mountain? It belongs to one of the numerous islands with which this sea is strewn, to vessels a simple sandbank. To us, an immense cavern. Chance led me to discover it, and chance served me well. But of what use is this refuge, Captain? The Nautilus wants no port. 
No, sir, but it wants electricity to make it move, and the wherewithal to make the electricity, sodium to feed the elements, coal from which to get the sodium, and a coal mine to supply the coal, and exactly on this spot the sea covers entire forests embedded during the geological periods, now mineralized and transformed into coal. For me, they are an inexhaustible mine. Your men follow the trade of miners here, then, Captain? Exactly so. These mines extend under the waves like the mines of Newcastle. Here, in their diving dresses, pickaxe and shovel in hand, my men extract the coal, which I do not even ask from the mines of the earth. When I burn this combustible for the manufacture of sodium, the smoke, escaping from the crater of the mountain, gives it the appearance of a still active volcano. And we shall see your companions at work. No, not this time at least, for I am in a hurry to continue our submarine tour of the earth, so I shall content myself with drawing from the reserve of sodium I already possess. The time for loading is one day only, and we continue our voyage. So, if you wish to go over the cavern and make the round of the lagoon, you must take advantage of today, Monsieur Aranay. I thanked the captain and went to look for my companions, who had not yet left their cabin. I invited them to follow me, without saying where we were. They mounted the platform. Conseil, who was astonished at nothing, seemed to look upon it as quite natural that he should wake under a mountain, after having fallen asleep under the waves. But Ned Land thought of nothing but finding whether the cavern had any exit. After breakfast, about ten o'clock, we went down on the, to the mountain. Here we are, once more on land, said Conseil. I do not call this land, said the Canadian. And besides, we are not on it, but beneath it. Between the walls of the mountains and the waters of the lake lay a sandy shore, which, at its greatest breadth, measured 500 feet. On this soil, one might easily make the tour of the lake. But the base of the high partitions was stony ground, with volcanic locks and enormous pumice stones, lying in picturesque heaps. All these detached masses, covered with enamel, polished by the action of the subterraneous fires, shone resplendent by the light of our electric lantern. The meeker dust from the shore, rising under our feet, flew like a cloud of sparks. The bottom now rose sensibly, and we soon arrived at a long circuitous slopes, or inclined plains, which took us higher by degrees. But we were obliged to walk carefully among these conglomerates, bound by no cement, the feet slipping on the glassy crystal felspar and quartz. The volcanic nature of this enormous excavation was confirmed on all sides, and I pointed it out to my companions. Picture to yourselves, said I, what this crater must have been when filled with boiling lava and when the level of the incandescent liquid rose to the orifice of the mountain, as though melted on the top of a hot plate. I can picture it perfectly, said Conseil. But, sir, will you tell me why the great architect has suspended operations and how it is that the furnace is replaced by quiet waters of the lake? Most probably, Conseil, because some convulsion beneath the ocean produced that very opening which has served as a passage for the Nautilus. Then the waters of the Atlantic rushed into the interior of the mountain. There must have been a terrible struggle between the two elements, a struggle which ended in the victory of Neptune. 
but many ages have run out since then, and the submerged volcano is now a peaceable grotto. Very well, replied Ned Land. I accept the explanation, sir, but in our own interests, I regret that the opening of which you speak was not made above the level of the sea. But, friend Ned, said Conseil, if the passage had not been under the sea, the Nautilus could not have gone through it. We continued ascending. The steps became more and more perpendicular and narrow. Deep excavations, which we were obliged to cross, cut them here and there. Sloping masses had to be turned. We slid upon our knees and crawled along. But Conseil's dexterity and the Canadian's strength surmounted all obstacles. At a height of about 31 feet, the nature of the ground changed without becoming more practical. To the conglomerates and the trachyte succeeded black basalt, the first to spread in layers full of bubbles, the latter forming regular prisms placed like a colonnade supporting the spring of the immense vault, an admirable specimen of natural architecture. Between the blocks of basalt wound long streams of lava, long since grown cold, encrusted with bituminous rays, and in some places there were spread large carpets of sulphur. A more powerful light shone through the upper crater, shedding a vague glimmer over these volcanic depressions forever buried in the bosom of this extinguished mountain. But our upward march was soon stopped at a height of about 250 feet by impassable obstacles. There was a complete vaulted arch overhanging us, and our ascent was changed to a circular walk. At the last change, vegetable life began to struggle with the mineral. Some shrubs, and even some trees, grew from the fractures of the walls. I recognised some euphorbias, with the caustic sugar coming from them. Heliotropes, quite incapable of justifying their name, sadly drooped their clusters of flowers. Both their colour and perfume have gone. Here and there, some chrysanthemums grew timidly at the foot of an aloe, with long, sickly-looking leaves. But between the streams of lava, I saw some little violets, still slightly perfumed, and I admit that I smelt them with delight. Perfume is the soul of the flower, and sea flowers have no soul. We had arrived at the foot of some sturdy dragon trees, which had pushed aside the rocks with their strong roots, when Ned Land exclaimed, Ah, sir, a hive, a hive! A hive, I replied, with a gesture of incredulity. Yes, a hive, repeated the Canadian, and bees humming around it. I approached, and was bound to believe my own eyes. There at a hole, bored in one of the dragon trees, were some thousands of these ingenious insects, so common in all the canaries, and whose produce is so much esteemed. Naturally enough, the Canadian wished to gather the honey, and I could not well oppose his wish. A quantity of dry leaves mixed with sulphur he lit with a spark from his flint, and he began to smoke out the bees. Just pausing here, what, what is up with Ned Land? Like, he cannot see something and not want to eat it. And, I mean, he's quite ingenious, I guess, that he's managed to, like, smoke out some bees when he doesn't have anything around him. But, man, dude, just leave things be. Just look at them. You don't have to eat everything. Man, it's good to you. The humming ceased by degrees, and the hive eventually yielded several pounds of the sweetest honey with which Ned Land filled his haversack. <laughs> Pausing again. He's just filled his bag with honey. <laughs> He's just going to be leaking honey for the rest of this trip. 
ridiculous. <laughs> Carrying on. Um, when I have mixed this honey with the paste of the breadfruit, said he, I shall be able to offer you a succulent cake. Oh, there's all there's little brackets here saying transcribers note: breadfruit has been substituted for artocarpus in this edition. <laughs> Interesting. It's the only transcribers note thus far, so interesting. And also breadfruit got mentioned earlier, so I'm curious why they didn't mention this translation issue earlier in the book. But okay, I guess. Nice work, transcriber. Upon my word, said Conseil, it will be gingerbread. Okay, I have to comment on that. No, it won't. You need to have some ginger for it to be gingerbread. What? Ah, oh, these guys. Ah. Oh. They've been inside too long. That's my conclusion. Never mind the gingerbread, said I. Let us continue our interesting walk. At every turn of the path we were following, the lake appeared in all its length and breadth. The lantern lit up the whole of its peaceable surface, which knew neither ripple nor wave. The Nautilus remained perfectly immovable. On the platform and on the mountain, the ship's crew were working like black shadows, clearly carved against the luminous atmosphere. We were now going round the highest crest of the first layers of rock which upheld the roof. I then saw that bees were not the only representatives of the animal kingdom in the interior of this volcano. Birds of prey hovered here and there in the shadows or fled from their nests on the top of the rocks. There were sparrow hawks with white breasts and kestrels and down the slopes scampered with their long legs several fine fat bustards. I leave anyone to imagine the covetousness of the Canadian at the sight of this savoury game, and whether he did not regret having no gun. Pausing again. Yeah, I bet. I bet he's there trying to plan how he can kill everything that he sees, because that's how Ned Land rolls. Carrying on. But he did his best to replace the lead by stones. Ah. Oh, he's killing them with stones. Oh, sorry. And after several fruitless attempts, he succeeded in wounding a magnificent bird. To say that he risked his life 20 times before reaching it is but the truth. But he managed so well that the creature joined the honey cakes in his bag. We were now obliged to descend toward the shore, the crest becoming impracticable. Above us, the crater seemed to gape like the mouth of a well. From this place, the sky could be clearly seen, and clouds dissipated from the west wind, leaving behind them, even on the summit of the mountain, their misty remnants, certain proof that they were only moderately high, for the volcano did not rise more than 800 feet above the level of the ocean. Half an hour after the Canadian's last exploit, we had regained the inner shore, here the floor was represented by large carpets of marine crystal, a little umbifelarious plant, very good to pickle, which also ba bears the name of pierced stone and sea fennel. Conseil gathered some bundles of it. As to the fauna, it might be counted by thousands of crustacea of all sorts, lobsters, crabs, spider crabs, chameleon shrimps, and a large number of shells, rockfish and limpets. Three quarters of an hour later, we had finished our circuitous walk and were on board. The crew had just finished loading the sodium, and the Nautilus could have left that instant, but Captain Nemo gave no order. 
Did he wish to wait until night and leave the submarine passage secretly? Perhaps so. Whatever it might be, the next day, the Nautilus having left its port, steered clear of all land at a few yards beneath the waves of the Atlantic. That is the end of that chapter. Next chapter, chapter 11, is called The Sargosso Sea. Hmm, I enjoyed that, um, that world inside a volcano. That was really interesting. So there's like a volcano that's been taken over by the Atlantic Sea and all kinds of creatures are growing inside. Also, Captain Nemo has a whole load of men who are just left living in the volcano, mining the sodium for him, which is intriguing. And again, I'm wondering, what is in it for these men? Are they being paid? Are they his slaves? Who knows? I mean, he doesn't seem like the kind of person to enslave people, considering he's sort of semi-ranted against it in the past. But I'm left wondering. Um, Ned Land is out of control and needs to be stopped. I mean, he... If I was Captain Nemo, I'd be jettisoning him off at some point, because he's just killing everything. Like, he just can't see anything. He can't see anything new that's alive without thinking, I want to shoot and eat that. That is his main thought and obsession. But I do kind of love it, in a way. A really horrendous way. It's all fun, so that was our day 100 of lockdown, and probably I'm going to stop counting the lockdown now, as I think it's kind of over. Um, which is now I'm just going to lose track of all days now. There's nothing that's going to keep me on track. It was a lot of fun. And... I will continue reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in a few days' time. We will continue with this adventure. I'm wondering where it's going to end now. Like, how are they going to get off? I assume they're going to escape at some point, but it's still sort of not really going anywhere. We'll find out. I wish you all the best. Have a good evening. Enjoy some tea. And join me for the next episode of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea.